0: Hello and welcome to Harvest Time on the Mersey. This week we celebrate one of my favorite things ever: Food. Specifically, the procurement of the bounty we waited all spring and summer for. I do loves me a good bounty. So in that spirit, I bring you a cornucopia of tales. See what I did there? (laughs) This first one is a French harvest legend, translated by Hermine Denagi. Called The Scarf of the Lady. The Field of the Lady was the name which the peasants gave to a large tract of land belonging to a rich estate. The lord of the castle had given these fertile acres to his daughter, and had told her to do as she pleased with the grain which the field produced. Each year at harvest time, she invited the poor peasants of the neighborhood to come and glean in her field, and take home with them as much grain as they needed for winter use. Sometimes when the cleaners were busily at work, one of them would cry out joyfully, Ah, there comes the lady of the castle! They could see her coming in the distance, for she always wore a simple dress of white wool, and over her head was thrown a scarf of white silk striped with many colors. She loved to come into the field while the people were at work and speak words of encouragement and cheer to them. One sultry afternoon, there were many peasants gleaning in the field. The lady of the castle had been with them for several hours. Suddenly she looked up into the threatening sky and said, My friends, see what large clouds are gathering. I'm afraid we shall have a storm before long. Let us stop gleaning for today and seek shelter. The peasants hastened away, and the lady started toward the castle. As she drew near the green hedge which bordered the field, she saw coming toward her a beautiful young woman and a fair child whose hand she held. The little boy's golden hair fell in waves over his white tunic. "'You came to glean,' said the lady of the castle, in her sweet voice, full of welcome. "'Come, then. We'll work together for a little while before the rain falls.' "'Thank you,' said the young woman. The three began to pick up the ripe ears and to pile them in small heaps. They had worked but a little while, however, when a gust of wind swept over the field and the great raindrops began to fall. The thunder rumbled in the distance, and streaks of lightning rent the sky. Come, my friends, said the lady of the castle. We must seek shelter. See, there near the wood is a great oak, thick with foliage. Let us hasten to it and stand there until the storm is over. In a short time they reached the tree and stood together under the shelter of its great branches. With his chubby hand the child took hold of the end of his mother's veil and tried to cover his curly head with it. You shall have my scarf, said the lady of the castle, smiling. She slipped it off, wrapped it tenderly around the dear child's head and shoulders, and kissed his fair young brow. Suddenly the great clouds seemed to roll away. The lady of the castle stepped out from the shelter of the tree to look at the sky. The storm had ceased, and the birds were beginning to twitter in the trees. She stood still, looking at the wonderful golden light which flooded the harvest field. And in the calm silence there came floating through the air the sweetest music she had ever heard. At first it seemed far, far away. Then it came nearer and nearer until the air was filled with harmonious voices chanting tenderly in the purest angelic tones. She turned toward her companions, and lo! they had disappeared. In the distance there was a sound like the light fluttering of wings. The lady of the castle looked toward the hedge where she had first seen her mysterious companions. There she saw them again, the lovely woman and the golden-haired child. They were rising softly, softly upon fleecy clouds. Around them and mounting with them was a band of angels chanting a joyful hosanna. The marvelous vision rose slowly into the clear blue of the heavens. Then on the wet ears of grain in the harvest field, the lady of the castle knelt in silent adoration. For she knew she had seen the virgin and the holy child while she worshiped in breathless silence the heavenly choir halted and in clear ringing tones the angels sang out blessed be thou blessed be the good lady who is ever ready to help the poor and unfortunate blessed be this field of alms the virgin stretched forth her hands to bless the lady and the harvest field At the same time the Holy Child took from his head and shoulders the silk scarf which the lady of the castle had wrapped about him, and gave it to two rosy-winged cherubim. Away they flew, one to the right, the other to the left, each holding an end of the scarf, which stretched as they flew into a marvelous rainbow arch across the blue vault of the sky. The Virgin and the Holy Child, followed by the angelic choir, rose slowly, slowly into the sky. Softly and gently as wood breezes, the heavenly music died away, and the vision disappeared. The lady of the castle rose to her feet. A marvelous thing had happened. The small heaps of grain gathered by the gleaners had changed into a harvest richer than the field had ever produced before. Over all in the sky still shone the lovely rainbow arch, the Arch of Promise across the Field of Alms. From France, we go to Tyrol for another harvest legend told in verse by Abby Farwell Brown. Where is Tyrol, you ask? Excellent question. It's a region of the Alps that has gone through many different political identities over the centuries. Today, the northern half of Tyrol is in Western Austria and the southern half is in Northern Italy. It changed hands several times as part of the Holy Roman Empire, the Austrian Empire, and Austria-Hungary. It has an extensive history, which is pretty interesting. If you're a history buff, you should certainly investigate this area of Europe. But for our purposes, we turn to the Sickle Moon. The Sickle Moon A Tyrolean Harvest Legend As told in verse by Abby Farwell Brown When of the crescent moon aware Hung silver in the sky See St. Nothburga's sickle there The Tyrol children cry It is a quaint and pretty tale Six hundred summers old When in the green Tyrolean vale, The peasant folk is told the town of Eben nestled here is little known to fame, save as the legends make it dear in St. Northburga's name. For in this quiet country place, where a white church spire reared, Northburgha dwelt a maid of grace, who loved the lord and feared. She was a serving little lass, bound to a farmer stern, who to and fro all day must pass her coarse black bread to earn. She spun and knit the fleecy wool, she bleached the linen white, she drew the water buckets full, and milked the herd at night. And more than this, when harvest-tide turned golden all the plain, she took her sickle curving wide and reaped the ripened grain. All people yielded to the charm of this meek serving maid, save the stern master of the farm, of whom all stood afraid. For he was hard to humble folk, and cruel to the poor. "'a godless man who evil spoke, a miser of his store. "'Now it was on a Saturday, near to the Sabbath time, "'which in those ages far away began at sunset chime. "'Nothburga in the harvest gold was reaping busily, "'although the day was grown so old that dimly could she see. "'Close by her cruel master stood, and fearsome was his eye. "'He glowered at the maiden good, he glowered at the sky.' for many rows lacked reaping, yet the dark was falling fast, and soon the round sun would be set and working time be past. Cling, clang, the sunset chime pealed out, and Sunday had begun. Nothbergis sighed and turned about. The reaping was not done. She laid her curving sickle by and said her evening hymn, wide-gazing on the starless sky, where all was dark and dim. But hark, a hasty summons came to drown her whispered words. An angry voice called out her name and scared the nestling birds. What ho, Nothburga, lazy one! Bend to your task again, and do not think the day is done till you have reaped this grain. But master, spoke Nothburga low, it's the Sabbath time. We must keep holy hours now, after the sunset chime. And then enraged the master cried, The day belongs to me. I'm lord of all the countryside, and hold the time in fee. No Sunday thought shall spoil the gain that comes a hundredfold from reaping of my golden grain, which shall be turned to gold. Nay, master, give me gracious leave, the Lord's will I must keep. Upon the holy Sabbath day my sickle shall not reap. The master raised his heavy hand to deal the maid a blow. "'Thou shalt!' he cried his fierce command, and would have struck. When, lo, Malthberga whirled her sickle bright and tossed it in the sky, a flash, a gleam of silver light as it went circling by. And there, beside a little star which had peeped out to sea, the sickle hung itself afar as swiftly as could be. The master stared up, wondering, forgetting all his rage, to see so strange and quaint a thing the marvel of the age. And she, the maid so brave and good, thenceforth had naught to fear, but kept the Sabbath as she would, and lived a life of cheer. So when among the stars you see the silver sickle flame, think how the wonder came to be, and bless Nothburga's name. This next story isn't exactly a harvest legend, but it does take place at harvest time, and I found it hilarious. <music> Jupiter App by Eleanor H. Porter It was only after serious consideration that Miss Prue had bought the little horse, Jupiter, and then she changed the name at once. For a respectable spinster to drive any sort of horse was bad enough, in Miss Prue's opinion, but to drive a heathen one? Ugh. To replace Jupiter, she considered Anne a sensible, dignified, and proper name, and Anne she named him, regardless of age, sex, or previous condition of servitude. The villagers accepted the change, though with modifications. The horse was known thereafter as Miss Prue's Jupiter Ann. Miss Prue had said that she wanted a safe, steady horse, one that would not run, balk, or kick. She would not have bought any horse indeed had it not been that the way to the post office, the store, the church, and everywhere else had grown so unaccountably long. Miss Prue was approaching her 60th birthday. The horse had been hers now a month, and thus far it had been everything that a dignified, somewhat timid spinster could wish it to be. Fortunately, or unfortunately as one may choose to look at it, Miss Prue did not know that in the dim recesses of Jupiter's memory there lurked the smell of the turf, the feel of the jockey's coaxing touch, and the sound of a triumphant multitude shouting his name. In Miss Prue's estimation, the next deadly sin to treason and murder was horse racing. There was no one in the town, perhaps, who did not know of Miss Prue's abhorrence of horse racing. On all occasions, she freed her mind concerning it, and there was a report that the only lover of her youth had lost his suit through his passion for driving fast horses. Even the county fair Miss Prue had refused all her life to attend, there was the horse racing. It was because of all this that she had been so loath to buy a horse, if only the way to everywhere had not grown so long. For four weeks, indeed for five, the new horse, Anne, was a treasure. Then, one day, Jupiter remembered. Miss Prue was driving home from the post office. The wide, smooth road led straight ahead under an arch of flaming gold and scarlet. The November air was crisp and bracing, and unconsciously Miss Prue lifted her chin and drew a long breath. Almost at once, however, she frowned. From behind her had come the sound of a horse's hoofs, and reluctantly Miss Prue pulled the right-hand rein. Jupiter Ann quickened his gait perceptibly and lifted his head. His ears came erect. Whoa, Ann, whoa, stammered Miss Prue nervously. The hoofbeats were almost abreast now, and hurriedly Miss Prue turned her head. At once she gave the reins an angry jerk. In the other light carriage sat Rupert Joyce, the young man who for weeks had been unsuccessfully trying to find favor in her eyes because he had already found it in the eyes of her ward and niece, Mary Bell. "'Good morning, Miss Prue,' called a boyish voice. "'Good morning,' snapped the woman, and jerked the reins again. Miss Prue awoke then to the sudden realization that if the other's speed had accelerated, so too had her own. Anne! Anne! Whoa! she commanded. Then she turned angry eyes on the young man. Go by! Go by! Why don't you go by? she called sharply. In obedience, young Joyce touched the whip to his gray mare. But he did not go by. With a curious little shake, as if casting off years of dull propriety, Jupiter Ann thrust forward his nose, and got down to business. Miss Prue grew white, then red. Her hands shook on the reins. Anne! Anne! Whoa! You mustn't! You can't! Anne, please! wow, She supplicated wildly. She might as well have besought the wind not to blow. On and on, neck and neck, the horses raced. Miss Prue's bonnet slipped and hung rakishly above one ear. Her hair loosened and fell in straggling wisps of gray to her shoulders. Her eyeglasses dropped from her nose and swayed dizzily on their slender chain. Her gloves split across the back and showed the white, tense knuckles. Her breath came in gasps, and only a moaning, Whoa! Whoa! fell in jerky rhythm from her white lips. Ashamed, frightened, and dismayed, Miss Prue clung to the reins and kept her straining eyes on the road ahead. On and on, down the long, straight road, flew Jupiter Ann and the little gray mare. At door and window of the scudding houses appeared men and women with startled faces and upraised hands. Miss Prue knew that they were there and shuddered. The shame of it! She in a horse race and with Rupert Joyce! Hurriedly, she threw a look at the young man's face to catch its expression. And then she saw something else the little gray mare was a full half-head in the lead of Jupiter Anne. It was then that a strange something awoke in Miss Prue, a fierce new something that she had never felt before. Her lips set hard, and her eyes flashed a sudden fire. Her moaning, whoa, whoa, fell silent, and her hands loosened instinctively on the reins. She was leaning forward now, eagerly, anxiously, her eyes on the head of the other horse. Suddenly her tense muscles relaxed and a look that was perilously near to triumphant joy crossed her face. Jupiter Anne was ahead once more. By the time the wide sweep of the driveway leading to Miss Brew's home was reached, there was no question of the result, and well in the lead of the little gray mare, Jupiter Anne trotted proudly up the driveway and came to a pending stop. Flushed, disheveled, And palpitating, Miss Prue picked her way to the ground. Behind her, Rupert Joyce was just driving into the yard. He, too, was flushed and palpitating, though not for the same reason. I I just thought I'd drive out and see Mary Bell, he blurted out airily, assuming a bold front to meet the wrath which he felt was sure to come. At once, however, his jaw dropped in amazement. Mary Bell? I left her down in the orchard gathering apples. Miss Prue was saying cheerfully. You might look for her there. And she smiled, the gracious smile of the victor for the vanquished. Incredulously, the youth stared. Then emboldened, he plunged on recklessly. I say, you know, Miss Prue, that little horse of yours can run. Miss Prue stiffened. With a jerk, she straightened her bonnet and thrust her glasses on her nose. And has been bad, very bad, she said severely. We'll not talk of it, if you please. I am ashamed of her. And she turned haughtily away. And yet... In the barn two minutes later, Miss Prue patted Jupiter Ann on the neck, a thing she had never done before. We beat him anyhow, Anne, she whispered. And after all, he's a pleasant-spoken chap. And if Mary Bell wants him, why, let's let her have happen. One more story before our featured story of the week. We're going to zig instead of zag and go to a story within a story with a barn. In the Barn by Burgess Johnson The moment we had entered the barn... I regretted the rash good nature which prompted me to consent to the plans of those vivacious young students. Miss Anstell and Miss Royce and one or two others, often leaders in student mischief, I suspect, were the first to enter. They amused themselves by hiding in the darkness and greeting the rest of our party as we entered with sundry shrieks and moans such as are commonly attributed to ghosts. My wife and I brought up the rear, carrying the two farm lanterns. She had selected the place after an amused consideration of the question, and I confess I hardly approved her judgment. But she is native to this part of the country, and she had assured us that there were some vague traditions hanging about the building that made it most suitable for our purposes. It was a musty old place, without even as much tidiness as is usually found in barns, and there was a dank smell about it, as though generations of mows had decayed there. There were holes in the floor, and in the dusk of early evening, it was necessary for us to pick our way with the greatest care. It occurred to me then, in a premonitory sort of way, that if some young woman student sprained her ankle in this absurd environment, I should be most embarrassed to explain it. Apparently it was a hay barn, whose vague dimensions were lost in shadow. Rafters crossed its width about twenty feet above our heads, and here and there a few boards lay across the rafters, furnishing foothold for anyone who might wish to operate the ancient pulley that was doubtless once used for lifting bales. The northern half of the floor was covered with hay to a depth of two or three feet. How long it had actually been there I cannot imagine. It was extremely dusty, and I feared a recurrence of my old enemy, hay fever. But it was too late to offer objection on such grounds, And my wife and I followed our chattering guides, who disposed themselves here and there on this ancient bed of hay, and insisted that we should find places in the center of their circle. At my suggestion, the two farm-lanterns had been left at a suitable distance, in fact quite at the other side of the barn, and our only light came from the rapidly falling twilight of outdoors, which found its way through a little window and sundry cracks high in the eaves above the rafters. There was something about the place, now that we were settled and no longer occupied with adjustments of comfort, that subdued our spirits, and it was with much less hilarity that the young people united in demanding a story. I looked across at my wife, whose face was faintly visible within the circle. I thought that even in the half-light I glimpsed the same expression of amused incredulity which she had worn earlier in the day when I had yielded to the importunities of a deputation of my students for this ghost-story party on the eve of a holiday. There is no reason, I thought to myself, repeating the phrases I had used then, there is no reason why I should not tell a ghost story. True, I had never done so before, but the literary attainments which have enabled me to perfect my recent treatise upon the disuse of the comma are quite equal to impromptu experimentation in the field of psychic phenomena. I was aware that the young people themselves hardly expected serious acquiescence, and that too stimulated me. I cleared my throat in a prefatory manner, and silence fell upon the group. A light breeze had risen outside, and the timbers of the barn creaked persistently. From the shadows almost directly overhead there came a faint clanking it was evidently caused by the rusty pulley wheel which i had observed there as we entered an iron hook at the end of an ancient rope still depended from it and swung in the lightly stirring air several feet above our heads directly over the center of our circle some curious combination of influences perhaps the atmosphere of the place added to the stimulation of the faintly discernible faces around me, and my impulse to prove my own ability in this untried field of narration, gave me a sudden sense of being inspired. I found myself voicing fancies as though they were facts, and readily including imaginary names and data which certainly were not in any way premeditated. This barn stands on the old Creed place, I began. Peter Creed was its last owner. "'but I suppose that it has always been "'and always will be known as the Turner Barn. "'A few yards away to the south "'you will find the crumbling brickwork "'and gaping hollows of an old foundation, "'now overgrown with weeds "'that almost conceal a few charred timbers. "'That is all that is left of the old Ashley Turner house.' "'I cleared my throat again.' not through any effort to gain time for my thoughts, but to feel for a moment the satisfaction arising from the intent attitude of my audience, particularly my wife, who had leaned forward and was looking at me with an expression of startled surprise. "'Ashley Turner must have had a pretty fine-looking farm here thirty years or so ago,' I continued, when he brought his wife to it. "'This barn was new, then.' But he was a 'er ne'er-do-well, with nothing to be said in his favor unless you admit his fame as a practical joker. Strange how the 'er ne'er-do-well is often equipped with an extravagant sense of humor. Turner had a considerable retinue among the riff-raff boys of the neighborhood who made this barn a noisy rendezvous and followed his hints in much whimsical mischief. But he committed most of his practical jokes when drunk and in his sober moments he abused his family and let his wife struggle to keep up the acres, assisted only by a half-competent man of all work. Finally, he took to roving. No one knew how he got pocket money. His wife could not have given him any. Then someone discovered that he was going over to Creed's now and then, and everything was explained. This concise data of mine was evidently not holding the close attention of my youthful audience. They annoyed me by frequent pranks and whisperings. No one could have been more surprised at my glibness than I myself, except perhaps my wife, whose attitude of strained attention had not relaxed. I resumed my story. Peter Creed was a good old-fashioned usurer of the worst type. He went to church regularly one day in the week and gouged his neighbors, any that he could get into his clutches on the other six. He must have been lending Turner drinking money, and everyone knew what the security must be. At last, there came a day when the long-suffering wife revolted. Turner had come home extra drunk and in his most maudlin humor. Probably he attempted some drunken prank upon his overtaxed helpmate. Old Ike, the hired man, said that he thought Turner had rigged up some scare for her in the barn, and that he had never heard anything so much like straight-talking from his mistress— either before or since, and he was working in the woodshed at the time with the door shut. Shortly after that tirade, Ashley Turner disappeared, and no one saw or heard of him or thought about him for a couple of years, except when the sight of his tired-looking wife and scrawny children revived the recollection. At last, on a certain autumn day, old Peter Creed turned up here at the Turner Place. I imagine Mrs. Turner knew what was in store for her when his rusty buggy came in sight around the corner of the barn. At any rate, she made no protest and listened meekly to his curt statement that he held an overdue mortgage with plenty of back interest owing and it was time for her to go. She went. Neither she nor anyone else doubted Creed's rights in the matter and after all, I believe it got a better home for her somewhere in the long run. I paused here in my narration to draw breath and readjust my leg, which had become cramped. There was a general readjustment and shifting of position, with some levity. It was darker now. The rafters above us were invisible, and the faces about me looked oddly white against the shadowy background. After a moment or two of delay, I cleared my throat sharply and continued. Old Creed came thus into possession of this place just as he had come to own a dozen others in the county. He usually lived on one until he was able to sell it at a good profit over his investment. So he settled down in the Turner house, and kept old Ike because he worked for little or nothing. But he seemed to have a hard time finding a purchaser. It must have been about a year later when an unexpected thing happened. Creed had come out here to the barn to lock up, he always did that himself, when he noticed something unusual about the haymow, this haymow, which stood then about six feet above the barn floor. He looked closer through the dusk and saw a pair of boots, went nearer, and found that they were fitted to a pair of human legs whose owner was sound asleep in his hay. Creed picked up a short stick and beat on one boot. Get out of here, he said, or I'll have you locked up. The sleeper woke in slow fashion sat up, grinned, and said, "'Hello, Peter Creed!' It was Ashley Turner beyond question. Creed stepped back a pace or two and seemed at a loss for words. An object slipped from Turner's pocket as he moved, slid along the hay, and fell to the barn floor. It was a half-filled whiskey flask. No one knows the full details of the conversation that ensued, of course. Such little as I am able to tell you of what was said and done comes through old Ike, who watched from a safe distance outside the barn, ready to act at a moment's notice as best suited his own safety and welfare. Of one thing Ike was certain, Creed lacked his usual brow-beating manner. He was apparently struggling to assume an unwanted friendliness. Turner was very drunk but triumphant, and his satisfaction over what he must have felt was the practical joke of his life seemed to make him friendly. I kept them all right, he said again and again. I've got the proof. I wasn't working for nothing all these months. I ain't fool enough yet to throw away papers even when I'm drunk. To the watchful Ike's astonishment, Creed evidently tried to persuade him to come into the house for something to eat. Turner slid off the haymow, found his steps too unsteady, laughed foolishly, and suggested that Creed bring some food to him here. Guess I've got a right to sleep in the barn or house, whichever I want, he said, leering into Creed's face. The old usurer stood there for a few minutes, eyeing Turner thoughtfully. Then he actually gave him a shoulder back onto the hay, said something about finding a snack of supper, and started out of the barn. In the doorway he turned looked back, then walked over to the edge of the mow and groped on the floor until he found the whiskey flask, picked it up, tossed it into Turner's lap, and stumbled out of the barn again. I was becoming interested in my own story, and somewhat pleased with the fluency of it, but my audience annoyed me. There was intermittent whispering, with some laughter, and I inferred that one or another would occasionally stimulate this inattention by tickling a companion with a straw. Miss Anstall who was so frivolous by nature that I sometimes question her right to a place in my classroom. I even suspected of irritating the back of my own neck in the same fashion. Naturally, I ignored it. Peter Creed, I repeated, went into the house. Ike hung around the barn, waiting. He was frankly curious. In a few minutes, his employer reappeared, carrying a plate heaped with an assortment of scraps. Ike peered and listened then without compunction. It's the best I've got, he heard Creed say grudgingly. Turner's tones were now more drunkenly belligerent. It had better be, he said loudly, and I'll take the best bed after tonight. Evidently, he was eating and muttering between mouthfuls. You might have brought me another bottle. I did, said Creed, to the listening Ike's great astonishment. Turner laughed immoderately. A long silence followed. Turner was either eating or drinking. Then he spoke again, more thickly and drowsily. Damn unpleasant, that rope. Why don't you haul it up out of my way? It don't hurt you any, said Creed. Though you wish it would, said Turner, with drunken shrewdness. But I don't like it. Haul it away. I will, said Creed. There was a longer silence, and then there came an intermittent rasping sound. A moment later, Creed came suddenly from the barn. Ike fumbled with a large rake and made as though to hang it on its accustomed peg near the barn door. Creed eyed him sharply. Get along to bed, he ordered, and Ike obeyed. That was a Saturday night. On Sunday morning, Ike went to the barn later than usual and hesitatingly. Even then, he was first to enter. He found the drunkard's body hanging here over the mow, just about where we are sitting stark and cold it was a gruesome end to a miserable homecoming my audience was quiet enough now miss anstell and one or two others giggled loudly but it was obviously forced and found no further echo the breeze which had sprung up some time before was producing strange creakings and raspings in the old timbers and the pulley wheel far above us clanked with a dismal repetitious sound like the tolling of a cracked bell I waited a moment, well satisfied with the effect, and then continued. The coroner's jury found it suicide, though some shook their heads meaningly. Turner had apparently sobered up enough to stand, and making a simple loop around his neck by catching the rope through its own hook, had then slid off the mow. The rope, which went over the pulley wheel up there in the roof, ran out through a window under the eaves, and it was made fast near the barn door outside, where anyone could haul on it. Creed testified the knot was one he had tied many days before. Ike was a timorous old man, with a wholesome fear of his employer, and he supported the testimony and made no reference to his eavesdropping of the previous evening. Though he heard Creed swear before the jury that he did not recognize the tramp he had fed and lodged, there were no papers in Turner's pockets, only a few coins and a marked pocket knife that gave the first clue to his identity. A few of the neighbours said that it was a fitting end, and that the verdict was a just one. Nevertheless, whisperings began and increased. People avoided Creed and the neighbourhood. Rumours grew that the barn was haunted. Passers by on the road after dark said they heard the old pulley wheel clanking when no breeze stirred, much as you hear it now. Some claimed to have heard maudlin laughter. Possible purchasers were frightened away, and Creed grew more and more solitary and misanthropic. Old Ike hung on, heaven knows why, though I suppose Creed paid him some sort of wage. Rumors grew. Folks said that neither Ike nor Creed entered this barn after a time, and no hay was put in, though Creed would not have been Creed if he had not sold off the bulk of what he had, ghost or no ghost. I can imagine him slowly forking it out alone, daytimes, and the amount of hay still here proves that even he finally lost courage. I paused a moment, but though there was much uneasy stirring about and the dismal clanking directly above us was incessant, no one of my audience spoke. It was wholly dark now, and I think all had drawn closer together. About ten years ago, people began calling Creed crazy. Here I was forced to interrupt my own story. I shall have to ask you, Miss Anstil, to stop annoying me. I have been aware for some moments that you are brushing my head with a straw, but I have ignored it for the sake of the others. Out of the darkness came Miss Anstil's voice, protesting earnestly, and I realized, from the direction of the sound, that in the general readjustment she must have settled down in the very center of our circle, and could not be the one at fault. One of the others was childish enough to simulate a mocking burst of raucous laughter but I chose to ignore it. Very well, said I graciously. Shall I go on? Go on, echoed a subdued chorus. It was the night of the 14th of November, ten years ago. Not the 14th, broke in my wife's voice sharply. That is today's date. There was a note in her voice that I hardly recognized, but it indicated that she was in some way affected by my narration, and I felt a distinct sense of triumph. It was the night of November 14th, I repeated firmly. Are you making up this story? My wife's voice continued, still with the same odd tone. I am, my dear, and you are interrupting it. But an Ashley Turner and later a Peter Creed own this place, she persisted almost in a whisper, and I am sure you never heard of them. I confess that I might wisely have broken off my story then and called for a light. There had been a hysterical note in my wife's voice, and I was startled at her words, for I had no conscious recollection of either name. Yet I felt a resultant exhilaration. Our lanterns had grown strangely dim, though I was certain both had been recently trimmed and filled, and from their far corner of the barn they threw no light whatever into our circle. I faced an utter blackness. On that night, said I, Old Ike was wakened by sounds as of someone fumbling to unbar and open the house door. It was an unwanted hour, and he peered from the window of his little room. By the dim starlight, it was just before dawn. He could see all of the open yard and roadway before the house, with the great barn looming like a black and sinister shadow as its farther barrier. Crossing this space, he saw the figure of Peter Creed, grotesquely stooped and old in the obscuring gloom, moving slowly, almost gropingly, and yet directly as though impelled toward the barn's overwhelming shadow. Slowly he unbarred the great door, swung it open, and entered the blacker shadows it concealed. The door closed after him. Ike, in his secure post of observation, did not stir. He could not. Even to his crude imagining, there was something utterly horrible in the thought of Creed alone at that hour in just such black darkness as this, with the great timbered chamber haunted at least by its dread memories. He could only wait, tense and fearful of he knew not what. A shriek that pierced the silence relaxed his tension, bringing almost a sense of relief, so definite had been his expectancy but it was a burst of shrill laughter, ribald, uncanny, undeniable, accompanying the shriek that gave him power of motion. He ran half-naked a quarter of a mile to the nearest neighbors and told his story. They found Creed hanging, the rope hooked simply around his neck. It was a silent jury that filed from the barn that morning after viewing the body. "'Suicide,' said they after Ike, shivering and stammering, had testified, harking back to the untold evidence of that other morning years before. Yes, Creed was dead, with a terrible look on his wizened face, and the dusty old rope ran through its pulley wheel and was fast to a beam high above. He must have climbed to the beam, made the rope fast, and jumped, said the foreman, solemnly. He must have, he must have, repeated the man. Parrot like, while the sweat stood out on his forehead, because there wasn't no other way. But as God is my judge, the knot in the rope and the dust on the beam ain't been disturbed for years. At this dramatic climax, there was an audible sigh from my audience. I sat quietly for a time, content to allow the silence and the atmosphere of the place, which actually seemed surcharged with influences not of my creation, to add to the effect my story had caused. There was scarcely a movement in our circle, of that I felt sure, and yet once more, out of the almost tangible darkness above me, something seemed to reach down and brush against my head. A slight motion of air, sufficient to disturb my rather scanty locks, was additional proof that I was the butt of some prank that had just missed its objective. Then, with a fearful suddenness, close to my ear burst a shrill discord of laughter, so uncanny and so unlike the usual sound of student merriment that I started up, half wondering if I had heard it. Almost immediately after it, the heavy darkness was torn again by a shriek so terrible in its intensity as completely to differentiate it from the other cries which followed. "Bring a light!" cried a voice that I recognized as that of my wife, though strangely distorted by emotion. There was a great confusion. Young women struggled from their places and impeded one another in the darkness. But finally, and it seemed an unbearable delay, someone brought a single lantern. Its frail light revealed Miss Anstall half upright from her place in the center of our circle, my wife's arm sustaining her weight. Her face, as well as I could see it, seemed darkened and distorted. And when we forced her clutching hands away from her bared throat, we could see, even in that light, the marks of an angry, throttling scar entirely encircling it. Just above her head, the old pulley rope swayed menacingly in the faint breeze. My recollection is even now confused as to the following moments and our stumbling escape from that gruesome spot. Miss Anstill is now at her home, recovering from what her physician calls mental shock. My wife will not speak of it. The questions I would ask her are checked on my lips by the look of utter terror in her eyes. As I have confessed to you, my own philosophy is hard put to it to withstand not so much the community attitude toward what they are pleased to call my taste in practical joking, but to assemble and adjust the facts of my experience. I confess I may have changed that date to be a bit more coincidental. The nice thing about public domain is you can do stuff like that. Our featured story this week is an absolutely beautiful fable which I built this entire Harvest Legend week around. I saw this on Facebook a few months ago as a meme making the rounds and had to have this on the magazine. Apparently it makes the social media rounds every so often. I'm not entirely sure how old it is, but it's based on a writing prompt on Tumblr. Temples are built for gods. Knowing this, a farmer built a small temple to see what kind of god shows up. Tumblr user Euphemist took up the challenge with a really beautiful little story about the farmer Arepo and his god. User Siriannon, I'm not entirely sure how to actually pronounce the name, uh, Siriannon added on a second act, and then Stewpot wrapped it up with an epilogue. Luckily, Sato Euphemist is still around, so I was able to contact them and secure permission to use the story for the magazine. Siriannon and Stupot left blanket permission statements on their Tumblr pages, so I'm able to present the story to you in full. Because of the nature of the permissions granted, I'm keeping this story demonetized, and the only place you can hear it is right here on the podcast. It will not be available to download on the Patreon page, nor will it appear in an omnibus with the other stories. You may want to grab a tissue or two for this one. I had to stop and collect myself around fifteen times while recording. All set? Good. And now, the fable known as the God of Areppo. Areppo built a temple in his field. A humble thing, some stones stacked up to make a cairn, and two days later a god moved in. Hope your harvest god, Areppo said and set up an altar and burn two stalks of wheat. It'd be nice, you know. He looked down at the ash smeared on the stone, the rocks all laid askew, and coughed and scratched his head. I know it's not much, he said, his straw hat in his hands, but I'll do what I can. It'd be nice to think there's a god looking after me. The next day he left a pair of figs, The day after that, he spent ten minutes of his morning seated by the temple in prayer. On the third day, the god spoke up. You should go to a temple in the city, the god said. Its voice was like the rustling of the wheat, like the squeaks of field mice running through the grass. A real temple. A good one. Get
1: some real gods to bless you. I am no one much myself
0: but I might be able to put in a good word. It plucked a leaf from a tree and sighed. I mean, not to be rude. I
1: like this temple. It's cozy enough.
0: The worship's been
1: nice. But you can't honestly believe that any of this is going to bring you anything.
0: This is more than I was expecting when I built it, Areppo said, laying down his scythe and lowering himself to the ground. "'Tell me, what sort of god are you, anyway?' "'I'm of the fallen leaves,' it said. "'The worms that churn
1: beneath the earth, "'the boundary of forest and a field, "'the first hint of frost before the first snow falls, "'the skin of an apple as it yields beneath your teeth. "'I'm a god of a dozen different nothings, "'scraps that lead to rot,' Momentary glimpses, a change in the air, and then it's gone.
0: The god heaved another sigh. There's no point
1: in worship in that. Not like war, or the harvest, or the storm. Save your prayers for the things beyond your control, good farmer. You're so tiny
0: in the world,
1: so vulnerable." Best to pray to a
0: greater thing than me. Areppo plucked a stalk of wheat and flattened it between his teeth. I like this sort of worship fine, he said. So if you don't mind, I think I'll continue. Do what you will, said the god, and withdrew deeper into the stones. But don't say I never warned you otherwise. Areppo would say a prayer before the morning's work, and he and the god contemplated the trees in silence. Days passed like that, and weeks. And then the storm rolled in, black and bold and blustering. It flooded Areppo's fields, shook the tiles from his roof, smote his olive tree, and set it to cinder. The next day Areppo and his sons walked among the wheat, salvaging what they could, the little temple had been strewn across the field, and so when the work was done for the day, Arepo gathered the stones and pieced them back together. Useless work, the god whispered, but came creeping back inside the temple regardless. There wasn't a thing I could do to spare you this. We'll be fine, Areppo said. The storm's blown over. We'll rebuild. Don't have much of an offering for today, he said and laid down some ruined wheat. But I think I'll shore up this thing's foundations tomorrow. How about that? The god rattled around in the temple and sighed. A year passed, and then another. The temple had layered walls of stones, a roof of woven twigs. Areppo's neighbors chuckled as they passed it. Some of their children left fruit and flowers. And then the harvest failed. The gods withdrew their bounty. In Areppo's field, the wheat sprouted thin and brittle. People wailed and tore their robes, slaughtered lambs and spilled their blood, looked upon the ground with haunted eyes, and went to bed hungry. Areppo came and sat by the temple. The flowers wilted now, the fruit shriveled nubs, Areppo's ribs showing through his chest, his hands still shaking, and murmured out a prayer.
1: There is nothing here for you,
0: said the god. Huddling in the dark,
1: there is nothing I can do.
0: There is nothing to be done. It shivered and spat out its words. What is this temple but another burden to you? We, Areppo said, and his voice wavered. So it's a lean year, he said. We've gone through this before, we'll get through this again. So we're hungry, he said. We've still got each other, don't we? And a lot of people prayed to other gods, but it didn't protect them from this. No, he said, and shook his head and laid down some shriveled weeds on the altar. No, I think I like our arrangement fine. There will come worse, said the god from the hollows of the stone. And there will be nothing I can do to save you. The years passed. Areppo rested a wrinkled hand upon the temple of stone, and some days spent an hour there, lost in contemplation with the god. And one fateful day, from across the wine-dark seas, came war. Areppo came stumbling to his temple now, his hand pressed against his gut, anointing the holy sight with his blood. Behind him, his wheat fields burned, and the bones burned black in them. He came crawling on his knees to a temple of hewed stone, and the god rushed out to meet him.
1: I could not save them,
0: said the god, its voice a low wail.
1: I am sorry. I am sorry. I am so, so
0: sorry. The leaves fell burning from the trees, a soft, slow rain of ash.
1: I have done nothing all these years, and I have done nothing for you.
0: Shush, Areppo said, tasting his own blood, his vision blurring. He propped himself up against the temple, forehead pressed against the stone in prayer. Tell me, he mumbled, tell me again, what sort of god are you? I, said the god, and reached out, cradling Areppo's head, and closed its eyes and spoke.
1: I'm of the fallen
0: leaves, it said and conjured up the image of them The worms that churn beneath the earth the boundary of forest and the
1: field the first hint of frost before the first snow falls the skin of an apple as it yields beneath your teeth.
0: Arepo's lips parted in a smile. I am the god
1: of a dozen different nothings, it said. The petals in bloom that lead to rot. The momentary
0: glimpses.
1: A change in the air.
0: Its voice broke, and it wept.
1: Before it's gone.
0: Beautiful, Areppo said, his blood staining the stones seeping into the earth. All of them. They were all
1: so beautiful.
0: And as the fields burned, and the smoke blotted out the sun, as men were trodden in the press and bloody war raged on, as the heavens let loose their wrath upon the earth, Areppo the sower lay down in his humble temple, his head sheltered by the stones, and returned home to his god. Sora found the temple with the bones within it, the roof falling in upon them. Oh, poor god, she said, with no one to bury your last priest. Then she paused because she was from far away. Or is this how the dead are honored here? The god roused from its contemplation. His name was Areppo, it said. He was a sower. Sora startled a little, because she had never before heard the voice of a god. How can I honor him? she asked. Bury him, the god said. Beneath my altar. All right. Sora said, and went to fetch her shovel. Wait, the god said, when she got back and began collecting the bones from among the broken twigs and fallen leaves. She laid them out on a roll of undyed wool, the only cloth she had. Wait, the god said.
1: I cannot do anything
0: for you. I am not a god of anything useful. Sora sat back on her heels and looked at the altar to listen to the god. When the storm came and destroyed his wheat, I could not
1: save it, the god said. When the harvest failed and he was hungry, I could not feed him. When war came,
0: the god's voice faltered.
1: When war came, I could not protect him. He came bleeding from the paddle to die in my arms.
0: Sora looked down again at the bones. I think you are the god of something very useful, she said. What? the god asked. Sora carefully lifted the skull onto the cloth. You are the god of Areppo. Generations passed. The village recovered from its tragedies. Homes rebuilt. Gardens replanted. Wounds healed. The old man who once lived on the hill and spoke to stone and rubble had long since been forgotten, but the temple stood in his name. Most believed it to be empty, as the god who resided there long ago had fallen silent. Yet any who passed the decaying shrine felt an ache in their hearts, as though mourning for a lost friend. The cold that seeped from the temple entrance laid their spirits low and warded off any potential visitors save for the rare and especially oblivious children who would leave tiny clusters of pink and white flowers that they picked from the surrounding meadow. The god sat in his peaceful home, staring out at the distant road, to pedestrians, workhorses, and carriages, raining leaves that swirled around bustling feet. How long had it been? The world had progressed without him, for he knew there was no help to be given. The world must be a cruel place that even the useful gods have abandoned. If farms can flood, harvests can run barren, and homes can burn, he thought. He had come to understand that humans are senseless creatures who would pray to a god that cannot grant wishes or bless upon them good fortune, who would maintain a temple and bring offerings with nothing in return, who would share their company and meditate with such a fruitless deity who would bury a stranger without the hope for profit. What bizarre, futile kindness they had wasted on him. What wonderful, foolish, virtuous, hopeless creatures humans were. So he painted the sunset with yellow leaves, enticed the worms to dance in their soil, flourished the boundary between forest and field with blossoms and berries christened the air with a biting cold before winter came, ripened the apples with crisp red freckles to break under sinking teeth, and a dozen other nothings, in memory of the man who once praised the god's work on his dying breath. Hello, god of every humble beauty in the world, called a familiar voice. The squinting corners of the god's eyes wept down into curled lips. Harappo, he whispered for his voice was hoarse from its hundred-year mutism. I am the god of devotion, of small kindnesses, of unbreakable bonds. I am the god of selfless, unconditional love, of everlasting friendships and trust, Areppo avowed, soothing the other with every word.
1: That's wonderful,
0: Arepo. he responded between tears. I'm so happy for you. Such a powerful figure
1: will certainly need a grand temple. Will you leave to the city to gather more worshippers? You'll be adored by all.
0: No, Arepo smiled.
1: Farther than that,
0: to the capital then. Thank you for visiting here before your departure. No, I will not go there either, Areppo shook his head and chuckled. Farther still, what ambitious goals you
1: must have. There is no doubt in my mind that you will succeed, though,
0: the Elder God continued. Actually, interrupted Areppo, I'd like to stay here, if you'll have me. The other God was struck speechless. Why would you want to live here? I am the god of unbreakable bonds and everlasting friendships. And you are the god of Areppo. I love that story so much. And hopefully I'll be able to get more stories by Sato Euphemist. Next week is our Thanksgiving episode. Baked goods, turkeys, and a very special Thanksgiving. You won't want to miss it. If you like the podcast be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. With the support of patrons, I'll be able to buy more contemporary stories for the magazine and won't have to rely on public domain. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Mayerzine. All the fiction featured in this program, except for The God of Arepo, is in the public domain. The copyright for The God of Arepo remains with its authors and is used here with permission. This production is Copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.